super windy here. It's a windy day in June. Dark clouds loom over the 14,000-foot mountains that ring the San Luis Valley. But rain isn't falling. Instead, wind kicks up dust from the road, turning it into funnels. The dry air is a strong reminder of why I'm talking to Christine Canale about water. Where we are now, which is uh, right in front of the entrance to Rancho Rosado, uh, which is now owned by Renewable Water Resources. Uh, we are the ranch gateway is beautiful, and it's probably not what you would expect to be one of the most controversial pieces of real estate in the valley. Not because of anything it's got above ground, but because of the water below it. But uh, this ended up becoming ground zero for the Trans-Basin water diversion attempts. And, uh, Renewable Water Resources, also known as RWR, is a group of water developers, engineers, lawyers, and a former Colorado governor. They're proposing to take water from this place, Rancho Rosado, and transport it over the mountains to a willing buyer. The entire decade through the 1990s, we actually fought uh, trans-basin water diversion proposals, first by American Water Development. Um, trans-basin diversion, also sometimes called trans-mountain diversion, is when water is moved from one river basin into another. Chris lives nearby in Crestone, a two-block town visible from where we stand. She's the director of the San Luis Valley Ecosystem Council, which has been active since the late 90s, organizing community members to protect public lands. She's passionate, and she's tired. You might be able to hear from her voice the general fatigue from fighting the same fight for as long as she has. It's really interesting for me now, um, you know, and this is years later, to now be dealing with another trans-basin water diversion proposal. And what Chris believes the water belongs in the valley because it's necessary for local ecosystems. And it's an important shared asset for local communities. And we have an obligation to provide these intact landscapes to future generations. And that's really why I'm here. Because, you know, one of the things I hear sometimes is, oh, you represent a special interest group. Are you kidding me? My special interest group is the entire planet. The valley is a great mix of people and environments that all depend on the water, from farmers and ranchers to national parks and nature preserves. But there's not enough water to go around. That's why there's such an outcry anytime someone proposes to move water away from these acres of farms and public lands. Water is needed for all living things to survive. It can also be controlled and has been by civilizations for millennia. So how is it decided where the water goes and what it can be used for? In order to understand this, we have to understand how water rights work. Flowing through San Luis, water in our veins, the lifeblood of our culture, aquifers and rains. This is Water Under Pressure, a podcast about the increasing demands on water in Colorado and how the choices we make now could tear us apart 
or help us to navigate our uncertain future. We are all Colorado, our future to choose. With water on the table, there's so much to lose. My name is Kristen Uhlenbrock, and from the Institute for Science and Policy, this is episode two. To get to the root of today's water conflicts, we have to go back in history to understand the complicated system that determines who gets water in Colorado and how much. So I reached out to a well-known figure in our state to learn more. So my name's James Eklund, and I am a water lawyer and a rancher and a parent of three kids here in Metro Denver. My kids are so sick and tired of me telling them where their water comes from. James is a fifth-generation Coloradan. His family immigrated to the U.S. from Norway and moved to Colorado in 1888. All they brought with them was... A trunk that my family still has, and the trunk uh, made its way to western Colorado, and they homesteaded on a tributary to the Colorado River called Plateau Creek. And they uh, made their living as ranchers from that point forward. Growing up in western Colorado, James remembers some of his first education on water came from his family, his neighbors, and even visiting congressmen. We talked about cubic feet per second like we were talking about, you know, Bible verses. There is not a day that has gone by where somebody on our place hasn't given thanks for the opportunity to steward land and water that started with people who had stewarded it and managed it for at least a thousand years. We're newcomers. For thousands of years, indigenous peoples and tribes lived throughout Colorado. Starting around the 1600s, Spanish colonists began to expand into the territory, followed by other European explorers, settlers, and miners. The oldest settlement is the town of San Luis, established in 1851. It wasn't until 1876 that Colorado was granted statehood. And with all that settlement came the need for water, and eventually a way to manage it. We developed this doctrine of prior appropriation that allowed miners and agricultural producers to divert water way far away from the stream through big ditches, small ditches, to get that water to their property so that they could do something with it. The doctrine of prior appropriation is the bedrock of our water system in the West. It's first in time, first in right. So if I stick my shovel in the river in 1888 and start delivering water to my crops, and you come along in 1890 and you put your shovel in the river upstream of me, and you can't take a drop until my water right is completely satisfied. First in time, first in right. A simple construct packed with so much meaning. That first user of the water is considered senior. Those that come after are considered junior. It's essentially like calling dibs on water. And while no one actually owns the water in a stream, 
people have been granted the right to use it for more than 100 years. So how did that get decided? I'm back in Heather Dutton's office at the San Luis Valley Water Conservancy District. We're looking at an old satellite picture of the valley. Another cool thing on this map is you can see how historically all these, so the streams I was talking about, they come out of the sand graves, they all, you know, run out of all these little drainages and come together. It's obvious to see where water flows, waves of green contour against the shades of brown in the topography. Large swaths of the valley are gridded with perfect circles where center pivot irrigation is taking place. Heather is responsible for ensuring that when new wells get dug and pumped, that they don't injure senior water right holders. Because in 1972, the state engineer, he's the head honcho who's in charge of administering water rights in Colorado. The state engineer decided that the Rio Grande Basin was overappropriated. And so that means that there are more people that want water, both surface and groundwater, than there is water available. And so the community came together and they said, well, we, we can't just shut down growth. We can't just shut down opportunity for people to come here and for there to be new, new uses of water. And our district kind of came out of dormancy and, and put together the first regional augmentation plan in the state of Colorado. And so we, we purchased some water rights. We took them through water court and changed them to augmentation. What so Heather is doing is providing a plan for new uses of water while protecting the senior water right holders. There's a lot of shuffling right now and people trying to balance their water use with their water supply. And how do we do that in a way where we're happy with what's left? How do we have conversations with each other and share water and build these really good partnerships so that we don't just wreck this place? It's a big task to figure out how to balance a system. Who is receiving water? How much? And keeping water supplies well distributed while also making it all sustainable. There's a a rule in botany called Liebig's Law of the Minimum that plant growth is hindered by the thing that they are limited by. So you can look at all, you know, the different macro and micro nutrients and figure out, well, what is this plant lacking? And that's the thing it needs. And in this valley, the law of the minimum is water. We just don't have enough, and that's what we all are limited by. The state engineer has a long history the position was created by our legislature in 1881. This is Kevin Ryan. He's the current head honcho in charge of overseeing water rights. I'm the state engineer, and I'm the director of the Division of Water Resources. Kevin was appointed to serve as the director about five years ago, but has been with the division for 24. The purpose of that position, in a state where prior appropriation was just this fairly new concept, and an important concept in a state that, for all practical purposes, is a desert, they found that they needed someone to measure the water because we had various water right owners competing for water on the same stream. Born and raised in Colorado, Kevin is attentive to the responsibility he holds. Objectivity is an important value for him because his job is to understand the ever-changing aspects of a contested system. I have a very solid basis for every decision I make, and that is, what does the law require me to do? Now, it's not as simple as I make it sound, but it is always based on these 
tenets of prior appropriation, maximizing beneficial use, not causing injury to other water rights, ensuring that people are able to fairly and reliably get the decision from me that will be grounded in the law and will stand. Beneficial use is an important part of prior appropriation. We have numerous types of beneficial use, and it's the usual things that you might expect. Domestic use, municipal use, industrial use, commercial use, and agricultural use. So it's that usual list, but we also need to include things like recreation and environmental needs and in-stream flow needs that also fall into that category of beneficial use. As you can imagine, pretty much anything can be considered a beneficial use. The definition is intentionally flexible. It wasn't until much later that things like conservation and recreation were considered a beneficial use. Another common phrase in the world of prior appropriation, use it or lose it. A water right holder must put their water to the beneficial use that they said they would. And after a given period of time, if they don't, they lose it. These phrases, first in time, first in right, use it or lose it, might seem simple, but legally they are very complicated. One reason, water follows the land, not the law. Colorado is a headwater state for four major rivers. The Colorado, obviously, but also the Arkansas, the South Platte, and the Rio Grande. That means their source begins up in the Rocky Mountains. But 18 other states and Mexico rely on that water. So according to prior appropriation, first in time is first in line. But determining who came first across all that area is a recipe for conflict. By now, you might be picking up on a theme. The 19th century settlement of the West began the creation of a legal system that still governs how we allocate a lot of our water today. In addition to prior appropriation, there's another key piece to water law, compacts, specifically interstate compacts. One of the more famous ones? The Colorado River Compact of 1922 has been professionally the epicenter of what I've done with my career and what I intend to do with the rest of it. So I'm excited to talk about it. This is James Eklund again. After college, he returned to Colorado to work for former Attorney General Ken Salazar who at the time in 2002 was running for re-election. So I was his driver. <laughs> so if you were driving around the state with an AG candidate today, they'd be on their cell phone incessantly trying to get money for their campaign, which is what you have to do. But it was really spotty coverage back then. So he could talk to me or sleep. And so he talked to me. And what he shared was, here's what you should do with your career. Number one, get into water law. And two, become legal counsel for a governor. James went on to do both. Not only that, he became the state's chief water official under Governor Hickenlooper, serving as the architect of Colorado's first water plan. Let's start at 1888. You've got a decently wet period 
happening in the Colorado River Basin. We start going into 1900 and it's getting even better. We're getting pretty good precipitation. I'm gonna throw out a term. I'm gonna talk in acre feet. An acre foot is the length of a football field without the end zones, filled one foot deep. One acre foot of water is enough for about two to three households per year. So back in the early 1900s, we had a period of, of record that was producing on this river about 18 million acre feet of water annually. Colorado was experiencing one of its wettest periods of the century. People downstream in other states were concerned. They needed the ability to control this wild 18 million acre foot river that was ripping out of its banks all the time and destroying infrastructure and crops and all this stuff. And they also wanted to produce hydropower uh, at scale to feed this huge population of Southern California. The West was growing rapidly, and as the need to harness water started to really take off, so too did the legal battles. Deciding things through the courts didn't appeal to everyone. And we got around a table and signed the Colorado River Compact, the first water apportionment compact in U.S. history in 1922. This was the first time more than three states negotiated an agreement around water. It came to be called the Law of the River, and it's invoked as a governing agreement for water management in the West. While the negotiations were a breakthrough at the time, they were set up to fail. And only now do we really understand why. First, it left out many people. We have to share it with the tribes that were not at that negotiating table when the compact was signed in 1922 in Bishop's Lodge. So uh, even though they have stewarded the river longer than anybody else, they were not invited to the conversation. And in 1944, we got a treaty in place with Mexico that gives them 1.5 million acre feet. It also was created during a very wet period. Well, that abundance didn't last. And water was apportioned as an amount rather than a percentage. You flash forward to 2022, and our last 20-year period of record has been almost the opposite. We've had, instead of more water than we know what to do with, we have a lot less. And we're closer to the 11 or 12 million acre foot river that on an annual basis, we all have to share. And we have to share it with an environment that we're now more knowledgeable about. Less water, more people, a changing climate, and how do we all share? Eight other interstate compacts were formed after the Colorado River Compact, including in 1938, the one for the Rio Grande, the main river flowing through the San Luis Valley. Many other key laws, provisions, and agreements shape how we manage our present-day water rights. At statehood, we said, we're not going to treat water like air. Everybody has to have it for human life, but we're going to create an asset class out of water. And you can own it. You can own a water right. You can't own the molecules of water. That's owned by the people of the state. But you can have a legal right to use those molecules, and you can lease it, you can sell it, you can buy it. So it's just very similar to real estate in that context. 
Water rights are like a piece of property or a house. And also, more than that. It's on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Three days without it and you're done. So it's not like real estate, and I fully appreciate that in a lot of ways. It's a life-giving substance, but it's also, it's a dichotomy. It's got both attributes of a public good and a private right attached to it. And that's incredibly important to understand because the West grew up around that concept. And if you go to the 16th Street Mall and you interview 100 people and you ask them, should water be capable of being owned by private citizens? I would bet the vast majority would say, no way. <laughs> no way would we, should we do that. Private citizens can't own air, so we shouldn't allow them to own water. And when you explain to them, all right, here's how we've done it for the last 150 years, they will say, oh, I didn't know that. I don't want to take you know, somebody's livelihood away from them or an asset that they consider to be, in a lot of instances, in agriculture at least, their most productive asset, most valuable asset. We don't want to just take their their property right away from them any more than I want somebody coming in and telling me that I have to get out of my house. Uh, you know, I, that's that's not right. And that's not the capitalist market-based system that we've grown up with in American democracy. I decided to take James up on his idea. So I went to downtown Denver and started asking people on the street what they thought about water and what they thought about the idea of water being owned by private citizens. No, I think it should be a public resource, I guess, because we all need it. And owning it would mean that, like, there's a price on it and it should be distributed amongst everyone equally. No, of course not. No. Water belongs to everyone. I think, yeah, it's a natural resources. You should definitely have ownership of it. If you can collect it, it should be yours. I mean, you purchase land and you drill your own well, and within limits, obviously, like you can't, you shouldn't be like using it. Selling it. Yeah. But like if you're using it for your own family. We didn't run into any water lawyers downtown, but many people have strong opinions about owning water. Water is personal, it's economic, it's cultural, it's a recipe for conflict. We have a system for managing all this, but as we've learned, this system isn't perfect. It's strained under growing populations and a changing climate. So we're constantly moving water, trying to balance it among competing demands and uses. And one of the biggest uses is agriculture. And now, because of the 20-year drought and the increasing cost on farming, the pressure is even greater. Next time on Water Under Pressure. Just getting people to understand that the, the water is not going to waste. You know, it's, it's raising a crop to put, to put food on the table. Water Under Pressure is a production of the Institute for Science and Policy at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science and in partnership with House of Pod. Episodes are hosted and written by me, 
Kristen Uhlenbrock, and producer Kat Jaffe, along with the help of producer Anne Maria Wad, Nicole Delaney, and Kate Long. Our theme music is by Alex Paul of Birds of Play. Our episode composition is by Jesse Boynton, with tracks from Epidemic Sounds. Our sound design and audio editing is by Amita Ganatra. For more information and additional resources on water in the San Luis Valley and greater Colorado, please visit waterunderpressure.org. If you have learned something new from this show, please tell us and rate and review Water Under Pressure wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for subscribing and sharing the program with others. See you next time. We are all Colorado, our future to choose.